Can I ask you please to open your Bibles at Luke 23. We're going to read the first 12 verses together. It will come up on the screen as well if you prefer to follow it there. But Luke 23, 1 to 12. So let's read this together. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, that is Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Okay, well, look, we are, as we've heard about in our worship already, we're working our way towards the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross, the single most important event in the history of mankind is coming, where Jesus, the Lamb of God, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, is going to die for the sins of the world. And then afterwards, he's going to be raised to life, and he's going to ascend into heaven, and he's going to sit down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he will intercede for the likes of you and me. And of course, that is where he is right now right now he's maybe interceding for me as i'm preaching i hope so lord i can do with that he's interceding for us awesome it's awesome and everything that's happening in this passage that we've just read is really in the shadow of this amazing event which is now just a few hours away everything is uh, we see it in the shadow of that but in order to get to the cross Jesus is having to first wade through a stinking, putrid cesspool of injustice and abuse and indignity. And really that's what we're seeing in this chapter. We're seeing Jesus wade through this foul, stinking muck. And uh, we're seeing what he has to endure even before he gets to the agony of the cross. We've got a kind of pre-cross period. Uh, that he has to endure. What else do we uh, see? Well, I think we also see that this is a time when Jesus, by the permission of heaven, has been delivered over into the hands of evil men and into the plans and desire of the forces of darkness. You remember when he was arrested in uh, the garden, Garden of Gethsemane? He said this, he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. We get a little bit more if we look at it, the expanded version. It says, he said this, but this is your time or hour 
a time when darkness rules or has power and authority. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That Jesus, the light of the world, the, 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 the creator of everything, the, the all-powerful one, has just been handed over to the will of the powers of darkness. Get your head around that. What on earth? Why would God allow that? Because it's not helplessly, but by the intention of God. He's allowed this to happen because it's going to lead to the cross. So God is using all things, it seems, even these evil things he's, God is making use of and using in order to bring his good, perfect will about. So as we walk through some of these scriptures this morning, we are going to encounter some grim people. That's what we're going to find, some grim characters. And we're going to see the power of darkness working through them. And uh, we've kind of already seen that, haven't we, a bit with Judas. Remember Judas? Yep, good. Your occasional nod is always welcome. Brilliant. Um, so what have we seen with Judas? The Bible tells us this, that Satan entered him and inspired him to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We've already seen that. And at this stage in his life, Jesus is right now totally surrounded by evil people. We're going to see the envious and the murderous. We're going to see the weak, the superficial. We're going to see the traitorous and the frightened. And through these sort of depraved characters, we're going to see Jesus fall victim by God's design to a terrible abuse of power, a total lack of real justice. And we're going to see an innocent man condemned to an agonizing death. So basically, that's what's happening. Jesus right now is wading through this foul, stinking swamp. He's enduring this horrible period in his life. And he's doing it because of the hope that is set before him. Jesus said, I, he's going to endure, the, the word says, Jesus endured the cross for the hope that is set before him. Question, what is the hope that's set before him? You are. You are the hope. He was thinking about the billions of people that are going to be saved, going to be set right, going to be set free because of the cross of Christ. He was willing to go to the cross and endure this foul muck right now because he loves you. So for me, as I've been, I've been looking at this passage, to be honest, it's made me feel a bit sick. I've just felt, yuck, this is horrible. And then suddenly I thought, no, he does this because he loves us. He's willing to endure it. So that's what's written over this passage. God is saying, I love you, so I'll do it. And I hope, if, if you don't take anything else away from this morning, take that. He loves you, which is why he endured this rubbish. So um, what are we going to try and do this morning? Well, I hope to do this. I hope we can go through this sort of pre-cross period and I'd just like to try and understand it a bit more with you, uh, if I can. I, I think we need to work our way through some of the events, some of the characters involved. We need to understand the politics uh, that's going on, because there's quite a lot of political stuff happening. And uh, we've got to spend a little bit of time just understanding who it is we're dealing with here. And if you recall, Jeeves helped us last week by beginning to unpack some of that timeline, didn't he? Do you remember that? Talked about the, the people involved and some of the the six different trials, ordeals, or 
interrogations that Jesus has to go through. Okay, so where does it start? Well, we saw that the situation really begin to ramp up when Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, in the garden. And uh, do you remember when Andre preached, he told us that some 600 soldiers invade the garden uh, of Gethsemane, and they're led by Judas, the betrayer. He goes over to Jesus, he, he betrays him with a kiss, and then they say, um, basically, they, they, they're fi- trying to find out who Jesus is. And Jesus steps forward and he says three words. He says, I am he. And as he says, I am he, they step back, these 600 soldiers, and collapse on the ground. Just three words from God, I am he. And the forces of darkness are put on their backside. Boom. We suddenly give, I mean, I was pondering that. Why did God do that? He's just reminding us, I'm in charge. The forces of darkness don't overwhelm me, but I allow them to to have a, 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 a purpose at this time. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Anyway, these soldiers must have wondered what on earth had happened, but they managed to get back to their feet, don't they? They, they? they arrest Jesus and they lead him away. And then it says at this time, all the disciples flee into the night. And this kind of dramatic place where they've just gone. Imagine a film of that, can you? And them all running off. So we then um, endure the first interrogation and uh, uh, Jesus is initially taken to the house of Annas, which we get in the Gospel of John. Annas is a former high priest, and uh, I understand he was quite a controlling man, really. He was the controlling power behind the priesthood at this time. Uh, his son-in-law is the current high priest, so it seems likely he's had a bit of a hand in that. I'll organise it so that he can control things, really, through his son-in-law. And so when Jesus is arrested, who do they take him to? They take him to Annas, because he's the kind of power behind the throne, really. Um, I was listening to one Bible preacher talk about this guy, and he said that he described him as a conniving man, probably someone who was able to come up with some charges that could stick against Jesus, which is why they've taken him to Annas. Anyway, Annas can't find anything initially. So he sends him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's literally just over the road from where he is. And then uh, we understand from the Gospel of Matthew that uh, he is already meeting with the other kind of religious bigwigs of the day. So in other words, they've gathered with the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is the most powerful council in Israel under the Romans at that time. And the Sanhedrin is where you would expect to find justice. You go there thinking, we're going to get justice here. <clears throat> but it's really obvious, isn't it, that they, they are not interested in justice. Do you remember this from last time? Yeah. yeah. They are not interested in justice. They clearly just want to find Jesus guilty so that they can have him killed. They want the problem of Jesus removed. That's really all that's in their mind at this time. So they hold this sham trial. They get these false witnesses in who can't even agree with each other. But despite all that, they announce his guilt. And then it says, remember there are 70 of them. They spit at him. A number of them spit at Jesus, the indignity of this. They then hit him in the face. They slap him around the face. And then soldiers join in and they are punching him in the face now as well. And then they mock him. 
None of this is appropriate for a court of law. Yet here it is, right in front of us. <clears throat> so justice is totally thrown away and it's replaced with a desire for death and indignity and pain is now being meted out on Jesus. He is then taken to Pilate. Now that's our chapter, chapter 23, the one we've just read. And uh, our passage opens with the Sanhedrin accusing Jesus of three things. They accuse him, this is basically more rubbish being poured over Jesus at this time. They accuse him of these three things, all of which are designed to provoke the Romans. They, they, the Sanhedrin are thinking, how do we get the Romans, how do we get Pilate to get really agitated about this Jesus so that he will kill him? That's what they're thinking. So they say uh, he, he's a, a troublemaker and a revolutionary. They say he's trying to deprive Rome of, uh, of finances. And then lastly, they say, well, he's a challenge to the established order of authority in the region because he's claiming to be a king. So not only are these guys full of murderous intent, they want to murder Jesus, they're quite happy to lie through their teeth as well. Yuck. That Jesus, the Son of God, would be subject to this sort of stuff is extraordinary. And it's quite a cocktail, actually, of charges, this, because Pilate's primary responsibility in the region was to protect Roman rule, power. He's got to guarantee his presence in the area. He's also got to make sure that the money keeps coming in. They don't let anything get in the way of gathering taxes. So if he believed any of this stuff about Jesus, he would have no option but to have acted against him. And actually, one of these claims really does seem to get to him. And it's the hot button topic for him is this, are you a king? Because he says, are you the king of the Jews? This is the controversial subject that's really got under Pilate's skin. What answer are you? And Jesus now has to work quite hard to de-escalate what is a very sensitive subject. So Jesus says, well here he just says, you have said so. But if you look in the Gospel of John, we get a bit more uh, about that. And you see Jesus skillfully just saying, look, basically you, you've been set up for this. The Sanhedrin have really wound you up, which is why you're asking me this question. And actually, uh, I, I, I'm not denying it when he says, you have said so, but he says, let's change the subject. Let's talk about truth. Very skillfully, he just says, I have come to be a witness to the truth. Let's not deal with this hot button topic. Let's deal with something else that you probably can have, we can have a conversation with. Unfortunately, Pilate was very cynical. When Jesus started to say, let's talk about truth, Pilate just says, well, what's truth then? Cynical, cynical man. Might be something, if you're having a conversation with uh, people and you're dealing with a really difficult subject, somebody say, uh, you say, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, well, Christians, let's deal with sexuality or identity, and they get all hot and bothered, what did Jesus do? He didn't, he, he didn't deny the truth, but he moved it on to a different subject. Might be worth us just remembering that when we're having those sorts of conversations. Move it on. So, 
Jesus is dealing with these allegations. However, Pilate's not an idiot. He's not an idiot. He takes one look at Jesus and he knows that he is no threat. So <clears throat> Jesus is standing there, he is bound. He is now sleep deprived because he'd been up half the night. He has a swollen face, presumably, where he's taken all the punches. His hair would have been matted with blood and spit by this time. He doesn't have an army. He is no threat. He says in John, my kingdom is not of this world. Bracket, I am no threat to Caesar, is what he's saying. Pilate looks at it, thinks this guy's a threat. I see that. And he knows that the Jewish leaders are jealous. That's what's going on here. They are jealous of Jesus because of his popularity. <clears throat> and he also would have known that Jesus went into the money uh, the changing area of the temple and kicked the ta tables over. So in other words, he's just challenged the priest's source of income from which they were doing very nicely. Thank you very much. And here is Jesus just kicking it over and saying that's immoral. So they, he knows, Pilate knows this is what's going on. This is an internal Jewish religious squall, as far as he's concerned. He says, rightly, I find no guilt in this man. That's a correct statement. And as the Roman governor, that ought to have been it. But it's not. We see that this is not a strong man. See, Pilate is caught because he fears the Sanhedrin. Because what they could do is they could go to Rome to go to his bosses, Pilate's bosses, and say, your man Pilate's not doing a very good job. He didn't deal with a dangerous revolutionary who was threatening your income. And Pilate is frightened of that. He knows that could happen. So he's frightened of their bad report to Rome. The other dilemma he has is this. Rome is really proud of its legal system. Wherever Rome goes, whichever territory it takes, it brings certain things with it. It brings its army, it brings its buildings, impressive buildings, it brings its baths, and it brings its games. It also brings its legal system, of which it is very proud. And actually, it's pretty good. And Pilate is duty-bound to uphold Roman honour, which means uphold the legal system. So he cannot just say something that isn't true because it's convenient to him. So he's got to tell the truth, this man is not guilty, but by doing that he knows he's in a dilemma because the Jewish leaders might now have a go at him. So he's very caught. So we see in the scriptures that he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. Oh, he thinks, goody good, or whatever the Latin version of that is. Goodius, goodius. <laughs> Something. And he thinks, great, I, I can get out of this. I'm going to send him to Herod. And Herod, because he's, you know, one of, he's a local lad, really, he could be judged by one of the local boys, and I won't have to take the responsibility for it, so I won't get the bad report. Whoopee. <clears throat> Whoopius. <laughs> so he sends him off to Herod. So this is now yet another interrogation that Jesus is going to have to endure. 
And what do we find in Herod? Well, we find another really dubious character. Man, this guy is not good. He is um, the son of the so-called Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great, apart from murdering all the children who were under two years old in the Bethlehem region for fear of his throne one day being taken by one of them, he murders them all. He's quite happy to murder. If you look into his history, there's no problem with that at all. Apart from doing stuff like that, he was also an Edomite. Now that means he was not one of, from one of the original 12 tribes of Israel, which means he has no business being the king of Israel. But the Romans like him. So the Romans have said, now, uh, Herod, we would quite like you to be our vassal king, please, because we know that you'll do what we want. So they get him into power. But he has no business being there at all. He has a number of sons, and he falls out with a few of them and kills a number of them because he's going a bit loopy towards the end of his life. <clears throat> and uh, we come across one of his sons here, Herod Antipas, who's the guy in this passage. Now, uh, uh, Herod Antipas has been schooled by his dad. He's a pleasure-seeking, ungodly, shallow guy. And um, he decides one day that he rather likes his brother's wife. So he decides to divorce his own wife, causing endless problems with the neighboring kingdom because she happens to be the daughter of the king next door. So there is now all sorts of ructions going on politically between the neighboring kingdom uh, uh, and his kingdom. He decides he's gonna marry this lady called uh, Herodotus, uh, and, um, which, which he does. He's also the guy that has John the Baptist murdered because he likes the dancing of his new wife's daughter. He's also the man that Jesus referred to as that fox. Not good, is it, for the king of kings to refer to you as a fox. I would be concerned <laughs> if that was a prophetic word that came over you. <clears throat> I'd get your knees. Yeah, so this is not a good man. And when he meets Jesus initially, he's delighted. That's what the scriptures tell us. He's delighted because he's heard about him and he wants to see him do a miracle. So here's a man who wants to meet a celebrity and be entertained. Do you see the measure of the man? Shallow, pleasure seeker, ungodly. He doesn't seem to have any interest in truth. Jesus doesn't say anything to him. Quickly, Herod's attitude changes. Now he starts to mock Jesus and he treats him with contempt and he dresses him up, presumably in sort of these mock kingly clothes, in order to mock his claim to be a king. So here we have a situation where an ungodly, pleasure-seeking son of a false king is judging the true king of kings. How perverse is that? And he is pouring scorn on his claim. Perverse. It's perverse. You see why I feel a bit sick when I've been reading this passage? You think, yuck. Jesus, you had to endure this rubbish. When actually just three words from you, and they'd have been on their backsides. I am he. Boom. But he doesn't. He withholds that. He endures this nonsense. This farce, really. And then we have the passage that we've been looking at. It ends with verse 12. 
don't know if you've ever looked at verse 12, it's, it's a bizarre passage. So it's saying that Pilate and Herod, these two weak, shallow men, ungodly men, who have fallen out before, somehow bond as friends over the mistreatment of Jesus. Ugh, yuck, what? Bizarre. So that kind of brings us to the end of our passage. So what does this grim passage show us? Well, I think I refer you to my, my Lord, I refer you to my earlier answer. We see the amazing grace of God demonstrated again and again and again. That Jesus would patiently uh, uh, go through uh, this appalling situation, but he's doing all of this for our benefit. That he would be surrounded by darkness. He would be led to the cross through this foul pool of injustice and abuse when all he had to do was speak a few words and it would end. But he doesn't. He goes through it. Makes you think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What's going on right now is part of the cost of God giving his only son. His only son is enduring uh, this rubbish. And he's doing all of that so that we could believe, that we could be forgiven, and we could be eternally saved and know him. But this is the price, or part of the price, of the benefit that we get. Okay, so I think that's the first thing it says. The other thing I think I'd just like to touch on is this. It, it indicates what uh, unsaved, unredeemed humanity is really like. That's what we're seeing in operation here in this passage. What does the Word of God tell us about that? You see, what we're seeing is people are under pressure. And when people are truly under pressure, what's really in them comes out, doesn't it? Have you noticed that about yourself? No, clearly you haven't. Right, there we are. <laughs> oh, well, I have. When I'm under pressure, what's really there comes out. So what does the Word of God say about people who are unsaved? We need to understand this. This is a really important bit of theology, actually, for us. So let's have a look at Romans. This is what the Bible says about people who are unsaved. It says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And it goes on. It's not a great CV, is it? It's not a great, imagine rocking up, somebody rocking up to their first job interview. Hi, welcome to this company, please take a seat. Tell us something about yourself. Yes, certainly. I am uh, full of envy, uh, I'm insolent, I'm haughty, I'm boastful, I'm well into murder. Uh, I, I just, oh, all these things, that's what I'm like. Oh, sounds like you fit in perfectly, in you come. This is what the Bible tells us humanity is really like when it's unsaved. Colossians tells us we were totally alienated from God and we were hostile towards him. That's you and me. That was truly what was going on in our hearts before we were saved. That was the nature of our being. Now I don't know how you kind of uh, respond to that. 
I reckon that's probably pretty difficult. In fact, I think that's a really difficult thing for us to truly grasp. Because we don't want to think of ourselves like that. Most of us want to think of ourselves as a bit like this. I'm a bit good, and sometimes I'm a bit bad. I'm a mixture. Is that how, generally, how we think about ourselves? Yeah, I do some bad things, but, but I'm, you know, I'm, I think you're getting carried away, Adam. I'm not that bad, actually, I think you'll find. Um, I've done a few things wrong, but that's how we want to see ourselves. Well, we may not have been aware of it, but this is what the Bible teaches us about humanity, unsaved, unredeemed humanity. It says this, it is utterly depraved. That's what we were before we came to know Christ. We were sinful to the core. Sorry about that. Now that's bad. I think, you know, on the scale of badness, that's a bad thing to find out about yourself, isn't it? Yeah. It gets even worse. Sorry about this, but it does get even worse. So Jesus, in John 8, is talking to the crowds, and he says, um, you know people who don't know God? Well, they have a father. Oh, really? Yeah, your father is actually the devil. So God is saying, to unredeemed humanity, you have a father. It's just not a father in heaven. Your father is the devil. Now, that's quite a blow. That would make quite an episode of Long Lost Family, wouldn't it? <laughs> we have managed to track down your father at last. You've never met. Oh, that's great. Well, no, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Jesus says this, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And you demonstrate, basically, the same characteristics that he does. So what does the devil look like? Well, this is what we're told by the Bible. The devil wants to kill, to rob, and destroy. It does get better. Don't look, okay, don't worry. The, the Bible wants to, it says that the devil wants to kill, rob, and destroy. He's also the father of lies. And it says he, day and night, accuses uh, people who believe. So he kills, he robs, he destroys, he accuses, and he lies. All of those we see demonstrated in our passage. Did they want to murder Jesus? Did they lie about him? Did they accuse him? Vehemently accuse him, yeah. Did they want to destroy his reputation and then steal his dignity by spitting at him? Yes, they did. We see all the characteristics of the enemy demonstrated right there in the characters that we have just seen today. It's just, there it is on a plate in front of us. And whether we realised it or not, that's the mould that all human beings were born into. So Genesis explains it like this, it says, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they died to God. They died completely to him. And every human being since that time has been born dead to God, including us. Talks about it, the Bible talks about it in terms of kingdoms. It talks about the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And it says everyone is born into the kingdom of darkness. And we need to be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. So Colossians says it like this, he has delivered us, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
into the kingdom of his beloved son. You will be pleased to know the transfer window is still open. You can change clubs. And I'll give you the option of that at the end. So the day that you and I believed in Jesus, do you remember the day when you received him as Lord and Savior? Some of you will have an absolute date. That very day, massive things happen to you. Massive things happen to you. You were transferred out of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. That's the journey you made. You who were once alienated and hostile, he has now reconciled by his body on the cross, this mighty cross, in order, he says, to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him. And that is now what you are. You stand before God above reproach, holy and blameless. The trouble is we remember our history, don't we? Well, I do remember when I did that and I did this. God says you are holy and blameless and above reproach because of the work of Christ on the cross. He has accomplished that for you. You have moved from a place where you were totally, totally alienated from God. Jesus now says you are the friend of God. You see the journey, the enormous journey we've come on. It says you had a devil, you had a father who was the devil. You now have a father who is God in heaven. You have been adopted into his family. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We are above reproach because of what Christ has accomplished. You are a new creature, a new creation now in Christ Jesus. You once were dead, now you are alive. You don't get more different from dead to alive. To see the length of it, what you did not do was say, well, I was quite good, and then Jesus saved me and I just crossed over the line. No, 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 you were way over there in the darkness. But he has led you to way over here in the, in the light. Yes. This is now where we stand in Christ. Mm. Holy, mm. blameless, above reproach. It's who we are. It's who we are. But we've had to understand how bad it was <clears throat> yeah. in order to understand the glory of the cross and where we now stand in him. Yes, that's right. Do you understand? Yeah. And what many of us try to do is shun the darkness. Say, I wasn't that bad. Yes, you were. Yeah. But you were much worse than you realized. But now you are much more righteous than you realize. Because he has taken you to the other end of the scale. We stand wonderfully now before him. It's the scandal of the gospel. It's the scandal of the gospel. We who are totally evil totally depraved and now and deserved punishment and death have been made fully righteous before him our sins have been forgiven by a gracious god why don't we just stand together just like to invite you if you have struggled with this idea that you are truly forgiven by the living God. I'd just like you to give that to Jesus today. Yeah. I'd like you almost sometimes, some, for some it helps to imagine. I'd like you to imagine that Jesus is standing in front of you and he declares you righteous. 
Can you hear him speak that over you? You are righteous now, eternally in my sight. Because of what he has done. Maybe you're someone here who has never really made the leap. Maybe you're someone who said, well, I'm, I'm good enough in my own, my, my actions are good enough to get me into heaven. No, they're not. But God has made a way for you. Yeah, thank you, Lord. It's like you to speak to him and just to say, I believe, please forgive me for my sin. You can make that leap from dark to light today. So Holy Spirit, I ask you for a profound revelation of who we now are in Christ. I want to ask you that during the course of this week, the understanding that we are righteous in your sight would flood our hearts and our beings. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.